Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Manchester is Red podcast with myself, Tyro Marshall and Samuel Lockhurst. Uh, it's the Friday before the Brentford game and we'll get on to discussing the Brentford game and previewing the weekend's actions shortly. But some sad news to start the podcast with today. Uh, the, the death of Lady Cathy Ferguson has been announced recently, the wife of Sir Alex. Uh, the Ferguson family announcing it earlier on Friday afternoon. I'll, I'll just read the uh, the statement for anyone who's watching the story yet. Uh, Ferguson family saying we are deeply saddened to confirm the passing yesterday of Lady Cathy Ferguson, survived by her husband, three sons, two sisters, 12 grandchildren and one great-grandchild. The family asked for privacy at this time. Uh, Lady Cathy was 84. Manchester United released a statement as well. Everyone at Manchester United sends our heartfelt condolences to Sir Alex Ferguson and his family on the passing of Lady Cathy, a beloved wife, mother, sister, grandmother and great-grandmother and a tower of strength for Sir Alex throughout his career. Uh, both men's and women's first teams will be wearing black armbands this weekend. United's first team, men's first team against Brentford at Old Trafford tomorrow and the women's team against Arsenal at least Sports Village tonight and the flags have been lowered to half-mast at Old Trafford as well. In tribute to Lady Cathy, um, Samuel, some, some very some very sad news on, uh, on this Friday. Indeed, and she played a pretty significant role in the modern history of Manchester United as well when she woke up her husband from a nap in early 2002 and told him he wasn't retiring Ferguson had had decided at the at the conclusion of the previous season um that he that 2001-2002 season that was going to be his last one but just beyond the midway point he was he was told otherwise by his wife and um and, and their sons Jason Darren and, and Mark as well they were in agreement with her and i think he, he said in looking at the quotes at the time it, it was almost the jolt that he he hoped for he ho- he kind of hoped that they would do it but it was still instigated by his wife and it's it's very rare that the manager of a 
sorry, the wife of a football manager is actually serenaded by by supporters on on match day. But that that is what happened. You you did have United fans singing. Every single one of us loves Kathy Ferguson, and uh, you just look at what United won after that. Um, turning point in early 2002 uh, during Ferguson's tenure it was six more titles it was three league cups an FA Cup a Champions League and a a Club World Cup which is in itself an an extraordinarily successful period and it's it's a sliding doors moment what would have happened had, had had she not woken up her husband but they were married for nearly 60 years. I think they were married for, for 57 years. So 57, uh, yeah. it's, it's probably worth tracking down for those who haven't seen it. There was a, the, it's the best Ferguson documentary, um, 1998, it's the Alex Ferguson story. It's, it's out there on YouTube and uh, it captures home life between home life with the Fergusons at their house in, in Wilmslow and the repartee between Kathy and Alex. And it's very warm. And there's one, um, there's one clip in particular um, that was filmed on the morning of a Good Friday match when United were about to play Liverpool at lunchtime. United were wobbling in the title race. Arsenal eventually uh, prevailed and wrested the title off United that season. But any hint of, te- of, of tension or anxiety in in, in, in Alex Ferguson is, is completely absent. He's just enjoying the repartee with his wife over the the breakfast table um she's ribbing him he's ribbing her and it's what you'd expect from from a couple who've been married for for a number of decades so there's there's a real warmth uh to to that clip and it's it's rare that anyone is is allowed into the inner sanctum of of ferguson's home life but those documentary makers were and it's still it's still fascinating viewing and i think it's pretty it's, it's, it's quite telling and also um, very apt that on the plaque that um, is, is by the, the statue uh, that was unveiled of Ferguson in, in the North Stand in, 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 Dece- in December 2012, it says about how it was unveiled by Lady Cathy Ver- Ferguson, his, his greatest supporter, because without her, he certainly wouldn't have been the, the, the managerial titan he was. And without her, Manchester United would not have been the you know the, the incredibly successful they, club they were during her husband's twenty six and a half year epoch. Absolutely, and you've told the story there of um, of the two thousand and two non retirement in the end, and, and how she talked him round. You've also written a, a lovely piece for the website this afternoon that I'd urge anyone to read about her her role and the history, the modern history of, of United, and of course. It was kind of Lady Cathy, I guess, that, that played a role in Sir Alex's decision to eventually retire in, in 2013. He, he's mentioned since the, the death of um, Lady Cathy's sister, Bridget, being a, a big reason to, for his retirement. And I, I think he's, he's said since that he mentioned it to her then. And, it, you know, she, she didn't push back against it then. It, it was clearly the right time. So her, you know, her, her role, like you say, in the, in the story of, of Sir Alex's time at United is, is huge. And you read any of his books and, and interviews and, it's clear from the way he talks about uh, how integral a part she was in his life and, and how big how big a, a rock she was to him, I guess. And the marriage as well. It was a Protestant family and a, a Catholic family coming together in Glasgow in in the 1960s, which 
it would have been an extremely fraught period, to put it mildly. It, it still is, obviously, between Celtic and Rangers. It's one of the biggest rivalries in world football because of, or, or mainly, you know, a big reason for that is is religion and, and, and beliefs. And uh, I think in his documentary in, in 2021, Ferguson, it, th- those early years, his formative years in, in Glasgow are probably the most interesting. And he recalls, you know, certain figures, I think, at Rangers taking a dim view of him of him wanting to marry or marrying a Catholic girl and how he wished he'd told them to to F off, really. Uh, so it's it's interesting backstory to um, how, you know, how they came to know each other. And obviously, of course, they got married. They had three three sons and they've got, well, had have so many grandchildren as well. And it's it's been, and, and it was an extraordinarily uh, successful marriage uh, in, in a familial sense and a professional sense for, for Sir Alex Ferguson, because you know he, he went out, he did the he he put the hard yards in as manager, and she 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 ran the home. She she brought the boys up. I think he he's acknowledged that time and again. And as you said, it was it, the the fact that he decided once and for all he would retire when her her sister Bridget passed away in December 2012, and she didn't she didn't stand in his way. That that clearly would have told him that it was the right time to go out. Of course, it helped that United were in a very auspicious position to to regain the league. I think there was some like twelve or fifteen points clear by by February or March time, and they were in a very good position um, midway through the season as well. They were top, and, and Manchester City were very gradually imploding under Roberto Mancini. So Ferguson backed himself to to certainly win the the league title at the very minimum. And it's nice things like you know, during his first year out. Um, I think he he went to the the Oscars in in Los Angeles with his wife because she'd always wanted to go to it, but because of the football calendar, she she was never able to, and and it was quite quite sweet as well that she although she probably could have gone on her own, she wanted to go with her husband, and the first opportunity they got, they took it, and it was it was quite fascinating that season because I remember you know I played played Hull at lunchtime on Boxing Day, it was an early kickoff, and they're Sir Alex Ferguson was in attendance for it, and I'm thinking this is his first Boxing Day off in in decades, and he's he's, he's there to watch United in person. But he's he clearly made a hell of a lot of time for his wife, and during those years, how how many years must it have been? Best part of ten and a half years. He's been retired now uh, since since he headed upstairs at United. Uh, at least they were able to you know, hopefully maximise that as much as they possibly could, and. Um, yeah, eighty-four years of age. It's 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 not a it's not a bad age at all, I suppose. Absolutely, clearly a very close family. Uh, three sons, as you know, twelve grandchildren and one great grandchild. I'm sure it'll be a very emotional day at Old Trafford on Saturday. Uh, as I said, the the women's first team wearing black armbands against Arsenal tonight. The men's first team wearing black armbands against Brentford on Saturday. Uh, the death of Lady Cathy Ferguson announced earlier today at the age of 84. And our sympathies go out to all of the Ferguson family. Uh, that's it for the first part of the Manchester is Red podcast. We'll be back after this break to talk about the football. Welcome back to the Manchester is Red podcast. Uh, it's been another busy week for Manchester United on and off the pitch. Uh, we'll come on to on-pitch matters very shortly. Uh, to start with, Samuel, in the 
the wake of the, the Galatasaray game, the Galatasaray defeat, there's been more takeover stories. You've you've done the story this week about Sheikh Jazim's bid remaining on the table. Uh, suggestions that Sir Jim Radcliffe has now submitted a bid for, for 25% of the club. I mean, fill us in on, on what the latest situation is there. And, and just generally, it's it's astonishing that this takeover process is still dragging on and bids are still being altered when it's it's over 10 months now since since the strategic review, as the, the club have been keen to call it recently, was um, was initially started. Christ, yeah, it's uh, it's it's the topic that really I think for, for for both of us it's it's not a particularly stimulating subject to uh, to discuss because it's just dragged on for so long, a preposterous amount of time. Financiers on Wall Street who are familiar with a strategic review of never known one to go on for as long as this one has and I, I really wouldn't be surprised if it if it passes the the one year mark and we're not far away from that at all that's got to be what November 22nd I think it is that was the date it was announced last year and I mean for, for some time now that the sense has been that the, the Ineos group which is headed by Sir Jim Ratcliffe have been the the favourites but of course, the goalposts have changed now that he might buy a minority stake, which would not be in keeping with the way he's operated throughout um, th- throughout his time and, and, and his ventures. He he wants to be the main man. He doesn't want to be a, a bit part player. But there was a book on Ineos that was released a couple of months ago, and he did say in it how how difficult it was to where. In, in terms of the process of buying United, how difficult it is dealing with six different siblings, each have different, they all have vested interests. And for some time now, Joel and Avram have been of the opinion, it's, they've, they've gone from being reluctant to sell to now just not wanting to sell. That has intensified this year. Their thinking is that this six billion figure that United are uh, supposedly valued at might might rock it in a year's time or two years' time with Saudi Arabia money coming into the game. And a lot of that is being poured in. The the Saudi Pro League say they're backed by 10 years' worth of money. And, of course, they, they spent an awful lot of it in the summer. And they, they are going to want to become a big player in football. And that does have a knock-on effect in terms of the valuation of, of clubs and other continents, and particularly the big clubs. And that may account for why the Glazers have just been dormant um, and, and why Sheikh Hassim's team are still awaiting a response. They say that premium offer is still on the table. It's believed to be in the region of £5 billion. It's for 100% ownership of the club. When the the statement, the pitch for owning the club was released in, in February, um, I think a lot of United fans liked the sound of it because it, it did tick a lot of the boxes and it was probably a more impressive statement than the, than the one that was released on, Sim, on Sir Jim Ratcliffe's behalf. And of course, I think Ratcliffe is not as popular with a certain demographic of United fans in terms of this whole process because he made the mistake last year of saying how how nice the Glazer family are. Uh, United fans don't want to hear anything nice about the Glazer family. They just the only nice thing to hear about them, as far as they're concerned, is that they're gone. They're not owners anymore, and of course, that's still not the case. But of course, if you're if you ask Jim Ratcliffe, you're not going to say they're a bunch of you know, you know, you, you add expletive there. He, you, you're not going to be antagonistic towards them because you're negotiating with these people. 
and it's it's probably a better negotiating tactic to be diplomatic to be you know almost offering faint praise here and there when you are asked about um the whole process and that i think he was asked that question before a number of months before um certainly before the strategic review had been uh, announced but it was it had been established at that point that he he was certainly interested in buying United, he was quite quick off the mark there, going back to, I think, the start of last season, in fact, when United had a you know, pretty dreadful first couple of games against Brighton and Brentford and the, the state of the nation was, in terms of the mood, it was probably worse than it is now, even though they've had a, a much worse start to, to this season. And so we we wait for something concrete to come out, some form of communication. Um, our colleague, Simon Peach was telling me the other week that Joel Glazer had had been quoted on something, but unfortunately for us and, and United supporters, it was in relation to the NFL and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which of course are the, the NFL franchise that the Glazer family own. The last thing Joel Glazer has been quoted as saying on, on Manchester United was his statement in the strategic review. Uh, we we tried to speak to Avram Glazer in New Jersey. We we didn't get very far. Um, I think he said something like, "Which I'm, I'm just here to enjoy the game." When when Laurie uh, Laurie Whitwell, our colleague, tried to get something out of him, and uh, that's that's about as successful as we've been so far. And it's probably the closest we're ever going to get to Avram Glazer as well. We um, some of us were caught a little bit unawares of him when he walked pa- by, past us in the in the. As we were waiting to speak to a player or, or Ten Hag, and um, it would have been much better to have spoken to him, but I think we all knew that he was not going to say a hell of a lot to us, and he didn't say a hell of a lot to Laurie either. And as I said, we we're we're waiting, uh, the fans are waiting, but um, I'm on behalf of United supporters. I wouldn't say that I'm I'm hopeful for a full sale. Everybody knows the Glazers. For United to become, I think, a real true force again, I think the Glazers absolutely just have to go. I think they are the biggest problem. Nobody's getting away from that. And there are interested parties, but the fact that we are nearing, we're approaching the one-year mark since this strategic review was announced, in some ways I'm surprised, in some ways I'm not surprised because it's the Glazers and nothing nothing seems to be straightforward with them. where silence is golden to them. Um, I mean, it's it's almost newsworthy if you doorstep Afram Glazer and he doesn't say anything because you, at least you're there and you're ask, you're peppering him with questions. And that was the case post Super League a couple of years ago when some reporters um, in America tracked him down. Uh, but these the, the this family seems to be elusive. I mean, Joel Glazer, you, you don't see anything of him. It'd be fascinating to see any footage of him or, or see any kind of engagement that he has or interaction with with the United supporter but it would purely happen by chance and even then in this modern age where you've got anyone can get their phone out and record it in in a couple of seconds but nobody's ever had that kind of footage he he is it feels like he's borderline inclusive Absolutely, yeah. And talking of the, the manager then, you were at Eric Ten Hag's press conference at Carrington earlier today. I mean, before we get into the the, the details and the nitty-gritty of, of what he said, I guess, I mean, what was his mood like? It's manager who's lost six, six in ten games this season, who is under some pressure, certainly. Did he did he seem like a, a man under pressure at Carrington today? 
I wouldn't have said so. No, he he seemed quite bullish. It did help that the the press conference started with him um, in, in interacting with John Shields, the the chairman of the Manchester United Foundation, about this very worthy coat initiative for the game against Brentford. Um, they're they're encouraging fans who attend the game to to, to bring their own to bring coats that essentially are surplus that people don't use anymore to donate uh, to children who. Who, who need them really? I mean, John Shields did a brief presentation uh, to us before Ten Hag came into the room, and in their research, they they thought that you know kids would want hot meals, they'd they'd want food to keep them going, and when they you know they they did a survey with children in in deprived areas, and what they discovered was that they they want coats, they want warmth, which is is a heartbreaking thing to hear. But the Manchester United Foundation have, have sprung into action and done this very worthy initiative. And a few of us who were there today were made aware of this presentation or this announcement coming um, before Ten Hag entered the room. I think the foundation have posted about it quite a bit in recent weeks. But some of us who went there today took some coats along that we don't need anymore, coats that our kids wear, because that's another important thing. that They say that if you've got primary school um primary school age coats that are no longer needed that's that's ideal because it's it's the, the coats mainly go to children they'll go to local children they'll go also to children in in Ukraine and ten hag as a symbolic gesture he donated his his united coat uh, i saw some women players as well they they donated their coats so uh, plenty of stacking up but if if everyone can can donate one tomorrow, and it's as, as John Shields said, it's it's going to be quite decent weather tomorrow, so you don't necessarily need your coat, and it's it's probably wise to go to the game wearing a coat that you have no intention of wearing of wearing again, taking it off and putting it at one of the six bag drops around the stadium. So that 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 in a lot of ways that is the best of, of Manchester United. That is Manchester United having a connection with the local fan base, with the match goers, doing something worthy for the communities the Manchester United Foundation have done for a many number of years. And then, of course, the press conference started. And he wasn't particularly quotable, but he did acknowledge some of the the problems um, with the team. And I I thought it was quite interesting that when he was informed of how the win percentage had dropped since the League Cup final, which a lot of fans have looked at and thought that has been the turning point in United not being quite right and and certainly I think Ten Hag's win ratio up to and including the League Cup final was 69%. Since then, it has plummeted to 50%. So there's certainly been a hangover from that and he acknowledged that. He said Marcus Rashford is struggling, but he's convinced he'll he'll catch fire. He used he used that phrase. Um you know, I I think one of the questions in the embargo section, without wanting to give too much away, uh, kind of acknowledged that the supporters are behind him and their problem is probably more with the players rather than the manager. And I'd agree with that. I don't sense any shift whatsoever among the supporters against Ten Hag. And looking at the last 10 years, they've changed manager a number of times. You, Although the buck always stops with the manager and that is always the the point of change that happens at any football club. This crisis he is in, compared to the crises that were that his predecessors had, it's still not at that level. It's not like Solskjaer 
after the the Leicester defeat that we attended, the 4-2, when it felt like that was the beginning of the end. It's not like Van Gaal's winter of discontent where he somehow avoided getting sacked. It's not like Mourinho's final months where it was a matter of time until he got sacked. And David Moyes in... I mean, I called it the Chides of March um, in 2014 when he oversaw back-to-back home league defeats, 3-0 league defeats to Liverpool and Manchester City. I mean, that is a hell of a lot worse than what's going on at the moment. I mean, Solskjaer's last last month was more like that because they did get hammered by Liverpool and they did get hammered by City as well. So Ten Hag is nowhere near that point yet. But the the defeats are becoming more damaging and if they were to lose to Brentford, I, I don't think they will. Brentford have had a really poor start. Um, that said, I didn't think that they'd lose to Palace at home in the league last week. But if they were to lose to Brentford, I think it would be the first time since February 79, since they've lost three home games on the spin in the league in a single season. And if they were to, and, and, and I think as an overall, if they if they lose tomorrow, it'd be the first time since, uh, what was it, October 1962 that they've lost just three games at Old Trafford in all competitions, which is an extraordinary stat. And these stats have been tumbling in the post-Ferguson era, but there is still a, you know, one or two that... Um, that are there to to be toppled, but it's it's obviously a record. It's an unwanted record that United would want to avoid, and he's he's still limited as terms of what he can do. Reguilón's not back. They've not got a specialist left back. That's a problem given the way Amrabat has performed there. So that that's certainly got to be something under consideration as far as his as far as his selection uh, strategy goes. Because I do think there need to be meaningful changes from the Galatasaray game. Absolutely. We'll, we'll come on to the changes we're making in the team news in in part three of this podcast. Yeah, I think you're right about Ten Hag's standard. I think we've both written pieces this week about how he's got things in his favour and maybe advantages that, that his predecessors didn't have. His approval rating is much higher. You know, I, was this way. I think Solskjaer got sacked after a run of seven defeats in 13 games. Mourinho after seven defeats in 24 games at the start of that 2018-19 season. Six defeats in 10 looks looks worse than both, worse than both of those, but I think the, the, the fans remain fully behind Ten Hag and I think there's a greater degree of faith that he can turn it around compared to maybe those two that, that couldn't, Mourinho probably for reasons of, of unity as much as um, as much as performances. So yeah, I think there's, I think we're still a long way from, from fans turning on him and, and the pressure being ratcheted up to, to that degree. But this is certainly a huge game this weekend and in part three of the podcast, we will talk about Brentford at home. Welcome back to the Manchester is Red podcast. Uh, United in their final game before the November international break this weekend. Brentford at home. A game on paper that looks like three points, but games have long stopped being, being played on paper for United this season. Uh, Samuel just reeled off the, the potential uh, stats and records that could fall if United do lose this game. Uh, it flashed up on Sky Sports earlier that Brentford hadn't won at Old Trafford since 1937 and that, uh, that felt like the kind of record that you should make a note of that could go this weekend. I think the last the last ten and a half years or so since the retirement of Sykes Ferguson has seen so many of those records go. Teams who, who hadn't won at Old Trafford in 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years have, have gone and won there. 
Brentford haven't joined the club yet, but might well fancy their chances of, of doing so this weekend. Uh, as we said in the previous uh, previous section, you were at Ten Hag's press conference today and he gave an update on team news. And I guess the, the headline to that is that Sergio Reguilon will not be available. So United once again have three left-backs who are unavailable this weekend. And that that is going to be an issue, isn't it? Yeah, especially given how Amrabat has performed there in in the two the two stern tests. Let's let's put it that way. The the, the Palace League Cup game was a walk in the park for. Well, I've been a walk in the, in the park for me at left back. If I'd if I'd started that game, that that was that was just a deemed and complete um, inconvenience by by Crystal Palace, and then they properly turned up four days later, and and, and Amrabat committed. I think maybe four or five pretty cynical. Um, fouls, whether it was deliberate handball or, or a cynical, um, cynical foul, and in retrospect, he was possibly fortunate to only have got one booking in that game as well, and, and, and avoided sending off. I think he can't start there tomorrow. I think Ten Hag has got to have four defenders in his back four, and the obvious way of going about that would be to switch Dallow to left back and have Lindelof at right back with Maguire coming in at centre-back. Now, I think Maguire should start regardless because Lindelof has been really poor this season and there has to be a fairness with the selection uh, policy. I know Ten Hag doesn't fancy Maguire and Maguire is, to all intents and purposes, at United done and it's a matter of time until he does eventually leave. But Lindelof and Varane has not been functioning particularly well. I mean, it was... It was rather ill-timed of Varane on, on Monday to say how they weren't conceding too many goals and they had to be more efficient up the other end. And then, lo and behold, Galatasaray score three goals against United, who, who also conceded four goals against Bayern Munich in the in their previous European game. So uh, they're extremely porous and they need to they need to plug the gap somewhere or other. And I suppose that. The quandary with Brentford is that, and Thomas Frank touched upon this when he was on Monday Night Football a couple of weeks ago, that whenever they play a big team, they just switch to a back three or a back five. And although you'd make an argument that United don't warrant that level of respect tomorrow, I think we're all expecting Brentford to to, to line up that way. Um, and, and it has got results to an extent as well, but this season their form has, has not been good. They're always bound to miss Ivan Tony. Uh, you, you look at their squad now, and it, it doesn't seem quite as fresh or as you know, or as fearless as it did eighteen months ago, or, or even even sooner than that. I mean, last season they had a terrific season, but they've they've hit that ceiling now. And where do they go from where they go from here? Especially when their their number nine is suspended and, and unavailable until the new year. That's that's a huge issue for them. And They've not particularly coped well in those circumstances. Uh, they've, I mean, they've only lost the two games. I think in in the league this season, the Everton result was a bit of a shocker, given Everton's form going into that. Newcastle away was a, a narrow defeat. So it's not as though, although their form is poor coming into this game, they're not in dire straits. I wouldn't say. Certainly, no Brentford fan is is looking for a change of manager, and I don't think there's any sense that they are in trouble either and they had some excellent results against the elite last season um mainly at home it's it, the, the, it's going to be different for them going away from from the community stadium but i still think that from if, if you're ten hag you you can't 
you can't you can't allow United to be dictated by how Brentford are going to set up. Yes, Brent, Brentford might be quite reticent, but you've got to try and got to try and have a more functioning um, a team that functions better than than in midweek. And if that means moving Amrabat into midfield or, or just dropping him to the bench, then you've got to do that. I, I I think it would be too much of a risk to go with Amrabat at fullback. When he was asked about Anthony today. He's, his reply suggested that he would start. He said he he could be ready to start, and he said it with such conviction that I think he, he'd like him to start um, because there's not there's not an outstanding alternative for the right hand spot. I think a few of us would quite like to see Mason Mount given a go there, but when the manager has got his hundred million euros right winger back in the squad the manager is is likelier to go with with that player rather than the player he's bought for for the central midfield role. So although United have these injury issues and it certainly compromises the balance of their defence, and Ten Hag did say after the Galatasaray game how they were unbalanced on the left side, so that would indicate there has to be a change there. They they were still probably only two players shy of their strongest team against Galatasaray. They've They've still got good quality and depth in key areas in midfield on the wing you think of the players they they could be able to call upon tomorrow i mean rashford he said today he he is struggling but he he spoke about him in a way that led me to think that he still wouldn't drop him tomorrow which i know a lot of supporters wouldn't agree with but if rashford starts and anthony starts then you've got mejbri garnacho Martial as, as as players to to come on, um, possibly Amrabat if if he's dropped. That's that's four of your substitutes already. So that whatever team or squad that Ten Hag settles on tomorrow, it is it is one that is going to be assembled at at major cost, and that will be a story in itself if Brentford beat United. Because as we saw with the Brighton game at the start of the month, I think Brighton's team or squad had been assembled for 17 million pounds and United's was well north of of 300 million so that's a bit of added pressure but I still think that the the way Brentford approach these games and their form going into this into this one and the need for United to win I, I my gut feeling is United will at least avoid defeat yeah, I mean, you you would certainly hope so against the Brentford team out of form. It, it feels like their poor form has kind of crept up on us really this season. They they started pretty well, a 2-2 draw against Tottenham on the first day, which in retrospect looks like a really good result. And then 1-3-0 away at Fulham. Um, but, but since then, no victories. Uh, lost three games recently. Drew at Forest at the weekend and obviously still without Ivan Tony. It does feel like the, the freshness they brought to the league last season, like you say, is is disappearing a little bit and it will be interesting to see how they set up they do use that back three a lot um, obviously used it against United in that 4-0 at, um, at Brentford last season but it, you know you, you mentioned the players available to United there and how strong the midfield and the front three could look the the vulnerability to United at the moment feels like it is in it is in defence um, I'm with you I would I would look to find a, a different solution at left back that probably means Dallow and I'd play Lindelof as well at right back, I think, and then for Rana Maguire at, at centre back. But it, it it feels when you list that back four, it feels one that's pretty gettable, pretty vulnerable. And you wonder if Brentford might just look at it and think the best form of defence might be attack here, and that they they fancy their chances of scoring. And 
you've not just got the defensive issues, but but obviously Andre Anana as well, whose confidence already seems to be pretty low. 18 goals conceded in, in 10 games. Uh, teams are creating good chances against United and, and the goalkeeper's not saving them, basically. And that that defensive record is probably the biggest area of concern at the moment going into, into this game and the forthcoming games, isn't it? Well, it was... The, the, defensively, last season, they were... They were really good, apart from these thrashings that that were peppered throughout the season. Brentford being the first, City conceded six, seven conceded at Anfield, but they ended the season with with the most clean sheets in in the Premier League. And the rebranding of that back four, certainly in in the early months, was of, of this Latino rebranding, if you like, um, was was very well received with with Dallo coming in and not not coming in, sorry, but. Certainly improving at right back, and Martinez coming in and being such a such a terrific signing. And and prior to his injury, he he didn't look like himself. He did look like a player who was maybe being troubled by a recurrence of an injury. And unfortunately for United, that's proven to be the case. The, the issue I've always had with with their back with their defence is that although their back four on paper are of like the first choice one, I'd always say would be Dallo, Varane, Martinez, and Shaw. The alternative back four, the quality I just think is is, is really quite lacking. And Reguilón has come in, and it's it's a pretty poor situation that United are in. That Reguilón is deemed such a, a big miss, and he's that's not a slight on him. He's he's done really well since he came to United, but from the evidence I've seen of him playing at Tottenham, United, and Sevilla, is that he's not very good at defending. And United certainly need a full-back, a left-back at the moment, who is competent at defending. And Malassia is not particularly good at defending either. He's, his United career so far has been underwhelming, to put it politely. And, of course, in the summer, ideally, United would have sold Maguire uh, to West Ham and they'd have brought a replacement in. And then it's a little bit more in Ten Hag's image. Coming into this weekend... At least one of Lindelof and, and Maguire have to start. Lindelof had a really good run in last season, and his form at the start of this season has been the polar opposite. And there's something about Lindelof. I've, I've thought this for a long time as well that when it rains, he looks particularly weak. He's not a very physical defender anyway, but there's something about the change of weather that makes him look even more gettable. And I thought he was actually doing all right the other night. He made a couple of key interventions or blocks and then it got to um looking back at that i think it was the second goal just how off the pace he was his positioning it was it, it was dismal and this is someone who's been at united for over 6 years and someone that you know, to put to put it politely really that average um just above average at best for them to have stayed at united that long that shows how far the standards at united have dropped and yet tomorrow he he probably has to start just because of the the defensive um, issues they've got at the moment. And of course, Maguire was always going to get selected for the England squad. Uh, I think he, he could have not had a single kick between the September and October internationals and he'd have still got in. And let's, let's face it, he, he barely has had a kick. I know he played in the League Cup game, but it's a League Cup game. His cameo against Palace last week was very you know, short-lived and... Um, memorable only for him punting the ball against Alejandro Garnacho out for a throw-in, which you know, rather typifies Maguire's last two years in a United shirt. And so whatever Ten Hag 
might think of these defenders that defense he puts out tomorrow he's he can't be he can't be content with he he, he can barely be sanguine with it and i think although brentford have got some decent players who can harm them and bueno's been a really good signing for for brentford and he's taken to the premier league very impressively as well they're not I don't feel on United's behalf this air of portentous. It doesn't feel as portentous as it did in midweek where you saw Zaha, Icardi, Dries Mertens even. Even though these players, we're judging them mainly on their reputations, the way things have been going, reputational damage, if you want to call it that, is is enough to um, to get you a goal against Man United, it feels like. So um, I think the way Brentford play could be a big help but if Brentford opt to play expansively that that might that that might um I I don't think Ten Hag is necessarily expecting that that might throw United but um I suppose from Thomas Frank's perspective given the lack of points on the board for Brentford eking out uh, an ugly draw isn't isn't a bad way to go into the the international fortnight yeah, let's try and finish on a positive then for anyone listening to this on Friday evening or Saturday morning. If there is anything likely to get fans going tomorrow, quickening their stride to Old Trafford, it is Rasmus Hoyland, isn't it? And I think there's going to be a lot of excitement at seeing him extremely unlucky to finish on the losing team in in midweek. You know, we, we spoke briefly on Wednesday about the impact he made on, on that game and how unfortunate he was. Two really well taken goals. Took his, his disallowed goal very well too. And he he feels he feels integral to United already. I think from what we were told in pre-season, there was a sense that he wouldn't be starting every week, that they'd maybe use Rashford or Martial through the middle. They were conscious that Hoyland was a, a pretty inexperienced 20-year-old really, given he'd had one season in a, in a big five, five league and hadn't played every week for Atalanta. But the impact he is making is is making him completely undroppable at the moment, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And as I said, in, in midweek, what was particularly impressive about his performance against Galatasaray was it was on the back of a, a bad day for him uh, against Crystal Palace where he had three really good chances, didn't score, United didn't score and they lost at Old Trafford as striker it doesn't get much worse than that. So for him to recover within three days with two goals on his home European debut for United was was great for him on a personal note, even though the night overall was was pretty disastrous for United. Hoyland, it was it felt like his breakthrough in United shirt and, and you hope for him now that he can get off the mark as soon as possible in the Premier League. That's that's the next obvious challenge for him. All of his goals have come in in the Champions League, but he's forged a connection very, very quickly with supporters. He got a very good cheer when he came on against Arsenal. Of course, the decision to remove him against Brighton generated louder boos at Old Trafford. The time he spent with the supporters at Manchester Platz in Munich at the uh, memorial for the, the the victims who died in the the air disaster in 1958. That's you know, it, it seems like he's. He, they've already United fans have already taken to him very very quickly, and that performance on Tuesday night will have done him the power of good. And it, that performance as well, it had all the attributes that Ten Hag told us about Hoyland in the summer. He he told us that he was he's unique, and I thought that second goal in particular was 
was a unique finish. The 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 way he gathered the ball, the the way the, the line he took to dribble it to make a two on two or one on one, and the deftness of that dink. It was terrific, and we wanted it to be a night celebrating the essentially the arrival of Rasmus Hoyland in, in a Manchester United shirt. And unfortunately for United, it, it didn't pan out that way. But he's he's going a long way at the moment to becoming the main man, especially with Rashford uh, only having scored one goal in nine games for United this season. And really, Rashford's best performance so far this season has has been for England. I thought he was really good against Scotland at Hampden Park, and you wondered then maybe that would galvanise him and he'd start to turn it on for United. Unfortunately, he was then really poor against Brighton and his performance level has, has just got worse and he, he looks drained of confidence. We saw that with that bot square pass in midweek where it didn't get anywhere near Fernandes and he really shouldn't have been playing it to Fernandes either. Fernandes was a long, long way behind and Rashford should have just hit it at goal there. But as as a mate said who was at the game, it's almost as if because of the groans and the exasperation that you hear when Rashford cocks up at the moment, was that playing on his mind? Did that have? Did that partly dictate his decision there? Because he, he he's there thinking, well, if I don't pass this, I'm going to get stick. Because if I shoot and it doesn't go in, I'm going to get even more stick. And in the end, he makes the pass. It doesn't reach Fernandez. It's just this you know, seventy odd thousand fans sighing in unison and he's having to hold his hand aloft uh, apologetically and Fernandez I thought was really really poor in midweek to the point that his his leadership was also poor and that he was bickering with teammates he was doing something wrong and then looking for someone to blame on that occasion rather than have a pop at Rashford he clearly sensed that Rashford is so drained of confidence at the moment it would have done him no good whatsoever so he just buried his his head in his hand and that is the way it's going for Rashford at the moment. I know a lot of people would have Garnacho starting against Brentford and, and I completely understand that and I'd, I'd probably go along with them because sometimes, and we've had this with Rashford before, the best way to jolt a player or galvanise them is to drop them and bring them on in the game and see what happens and if they get a goal, then they their, their form might pick up. So uh, Ten, Ten Hag has been... I think he's managed selections really well by and large United, but this season I don't think he's been as ruthless as he was last season, especially with interval changes. Um, yeah, Garnacho probably should have come on earlier against Palace, and when he did come on, it was for Palistri, who was just hitting his stride. And when Garnacho comes on, you know he's going on the left, so Rashford comes on the right, and Rashford was anonymous on the right because he doesn't like playing there. And then he eventually went off. So United, effectively, they were playing with 10 men because Rashford was in a position that as soon as he got the nod that you're going to have to switch on the other side, his his body language just, it, it was negative. He, he was not going to react positively to that. He knew it. It would have been a lot more beneficial for United to have had Palistri stay on in the position that he plays in and Garnacho coming on in the position he plays in. So that ruthlessness... Of ten, that Ten Hag displayed last season, it has been lacking this season. I think the only player who's come on as a sub at halftime has been Lindelof, oddly, in, in, in three different games. So if United are in a pretty dire state at halftime tomorrow, you'd hope there was a really proactive move. I, I, sorry, I, f- I forgot Christian Eriksen in, in the week against Galatasaray. And I imagine that was tactical because Hannibal Mejbri didn't 
he didn't really do much on the ball, which is the criticism you'd have of him across these these first team appearances. He's he's bustling about, he's 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 working really hard, but when he's getting the ball, he's not making the difference that you'd hope a playmaker would make, and that's got to be his next challenge. Uh, so. Yeah, it's Man United Brentford three o'clock on a Saturday isn't usually the the game of the day or the the one that the radio uh, stations would be covering, but it's a hell of a lot bigger now than it was when when the fixture computer was um, had, had it down as, as as being the game for this weekend. Definitely, and it is not on telly in the UK. So to stay across eventual Old Trafford tomorrow, get yourselves to the Manchester Evening News website. Me and Samuel will, will have your coverage from around about midday with all the build-up and then all the live coverage from the game and plenty of video and, and written content, everything you need basically from Old Trafford, whether you want it or not. Uh, but that is all for today's podcast. Thank you for joining us, Samuel. Thank you, Ty. I will see you tomorrow. Will do. I will see you tomorrow and we will see you on Monday. We'll be back on Monday to discuss the Brentford game, hopefully bring a bit of positivity to this podcast and look ahead to the international break. So remember to give us a like and subscribe so you get that Monday podcast. Follow us on YouTube as well, where you can see our faces as well as hear our voices. Uh, But for now, that is all. We'll be back on Monday. (laughs) 